The word of our Lord from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. That you would bless us as hearers of it. And Lord, that you would make us to be doers of it as well, and not hearers only. In the name of your Son, Jesus, your living and eternal word, we pray. Amen. A day like this really serves many purposes. It gives, um, it gives us as a church something special to which to invite guests. You know, hey, come visit us. Check us out. And so fittingly, we call it Check Us Out Sunday. But it serves also as a sort of commercial to those who do come. And not just a commercial to those who come who might be guests, but also a sort of commercial and a sort of reminder to those of us who consider Faith Methodist our home. It reminds us and promotes who we are and what we do. It recenters our focus. It reprioritizes our life and ministry as a church. It's a chance for us to say, Hey, church, don't forget who you are because that's sometimes easy to do. And don't forget what you are to be doing. It's like the whole object lesson that Jesus gave about the salt. I wonder if he had any salt there with him when he said, You are the salt of the earth. You know, a salt that loses its saltiness, Jesus said. Is worthless. It's meaningless. It's pointless. It might as well be cast out on the street and trampled on underfoot. It's useless. Would you keep salt that has no saltiness in your pantry? You'd throw it out. You wouldn't even take the time to go outside and throw it out into the dirt so that maybe the animals might benefit from it or the earth might receive some of its nutrients back. You'd probably pour it down the garbage disposal and wash it down or just toss it in the wastebasket and put it out with trash this Wednesday. A church that forgets 
who it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to be about doing fails to be a church. It fails to be what God has called it to be. Lately, when folks ask me about Faith Methodist Church, because, of course, as a pastor, folks often ask me about Faith Methodist Church. It's one of those conversation pieces that I, um, I actually do try to avoid, and it's very difficult to avoid because very quickly it gets brought up. So what brought you here to Georgia? So what do you do? But when folks ask me, so tell me a little bit about faith. Where do you guys meet? How, you know, how big a church is it? What do you all do? That sort of thing. I've been telling them that we're a, a special kind of small batch handcrafted Methodism. What does that mean, though? I was actually talking, uh, David, just a couple weeks ago with Dr. Nyhoff at the seminary. He called to check in on me, see how we were doing. Tell me some exciting things are going on at WBS over in Jackson. And, um, and I mentioned that idea of being a small batch handcrafted Methodism. And I thought the man was about to wreck his car. He was so excited. But what does that mean? Well, consider our values as a church. That's a good place for us to start. We say we value relational community. We say we value transformational discipleship. And we say we value personal mission. Now the nouns, go back to elementary grammar, the nouns, community, discipleship, mission, those are what drive us and keep us focused. We are to be about community. Relationships with one another. Getting beyond just the handshake. You know, that Sunday morning handshake where you hold out the paw and maybe give, it, give a, a good sturdy tug. I about shook uh, Rick's coffee all over him this morning. I had to apologize. And then, of course, I mentioned Dr. Roman Miller and how he used to do that old buzzsaw handshake. It didn't matter how old you were or little you were. But getting beyond the handshake, getting beyond the mere formalities of, oh yeah, well, we go to church together, but actually sharing life together as a community. Discipleship, we're going somewhere. We're being formed and shaped by the living God. He's doing something in our lives more than just informing us about information that we don't have. Discipleship is not just some program. It is about how God is in the context of community, shaping our lives, transforming us. And we are to be about and driven by and focused upon mission. Doing good in the world. Reaching those that Jesus called the least of these, my brethren. And you'll remember, Jesus' language was quite hellishly hot when he said, what you have failed to do to the least of these brothers of mine, you have failed to do to me. Now go. Get out. 
These nouns drive us. They focus our attention. If what we're doing is not fostering community and discipleship and mission, if it's not transforming lives, if it's not going out into the world and putting our hands upon those who are hurting, then we're missing the mark to which we've been called. But the adjectives are what characterize us and make us peculiar. We're not just trying to develop community, but relational community, where people really know each other, where we form bonds together, where we do life together. Cliché, I know. Our discipleship, again, it's not just a program. It's not just a a, a six-week series. It is about lives that are being transformed and shaped by the living Jesus. Where, where, where discipleship is not just something that happens in a classroom, but it's also something that happens while we deliver meals together to shut-ins. While we go and minister to kids whose families are incarcerated or dead. That's the type of discipleship Jesus called His disciples to. Come, follow Me. He led them not to a classroom but into the lives of others who are hurting. And if our discipleship is not transforming us, then we are failing to be who God has characterized us to be. Often when we think of mission, we think of write a check, send it to Kenya. Write a check, send it to China. We think of out there mission, and it's easy for us to, to think that that's oh, being on mission, and we ought to be doing that. Some of you are supporting missionaries around the world, in Japan, in Uganda, in kind of in Kenya, Honduras, Ecuador. used to have missionaries in Russia. But by personal mission, we mean actually doing the personal work ourselves of reaching others who have no hope. We ought to be supporting missions around the world and overseas, but we also ought to be personally invested in mission to our neighborhoods and the communities up the road. We pass by a place like Devereaux every single week and have no earthly idea on Barrett Parkway of all places the hurt that is going on in the lives of a hundred kids who are in middle and high school. And so that's why we do what we do. Because this is that to which God has called us in Christ. He has called us to Himself to shape our lives and send us out. I said that this makes us peculiar. Peculiar, of course, is synonymous for weird or different. And you're probably tired of me calling you weird and different. But you are. You can't get away from it. I know the real you. And you're really weird. 
But in all seriousness, we really are a different kind of church. We're not the type of church that's going to appeal to everyone. And I know, I know some, some might say, but pastor, every church tries to claim to be unlike other churches around them. Some do it very obviously, you know. We're not like your grandma's church might be on the sign out front. Church for people who don't do church might be printed on the backs of their t-shirts. Ours just have a, you know, a website. Some do this more subtly, you know, the edgy ones. The ones with weird names and non-religious logos. There's one church that Lindsay and I pass somewhat frequently and every time Every time we pass it, we comment about how their logo looks like the logo of an insurance company. I promise, it really does. You could pass that church. You probably have passed that church. You have no earthly idea it's a church. You think it's the insurance company. There's another one that we pass every once in a while that looks like a a small business that would sell oils, herbs, and other homeopathic therapeutic paraphernalia. I'm not kidding. And I'm not trying to pick on these churches because, hey, we're a church that meets in a building that's like 10 times our size. And so we can't be throwing stones. My only point is that we are a different type of church, just like they are a different type of church, just like the church up the street here is a different type of church and the one across the block from it. We are called to be peculiar, different. You know, the more I study Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the more I'm convinced that the church in the West, especially throughout suburban America, is much like the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city in the ancient Roman world. As such, it was highly populated soul-crushingly busy. It was tough to live there as a Christian. It was filled with business and politics. It was filled with culture and pluralism. It was filled with wealth and idolatry. Not all of these are in and of themselves bad, of course. Idolatry, of course, is always bad. But, you know... Banks knows one or two good politicians. He could tell you about them. But any of these, business, politics, culture, pluralism, wealth, idolatry, any of these, especially all of them together, make Christian faithfulness and following Jesus difficult. Exceedingly difficult. The pressures were constantly mounting. The subtle invitation to just compromise. The angry demands to just get along and get over this Jesus character. I remember even in middle school, seventh grade, maybe eighth grade. One of my best friends, and some of you know my best friends, and no, it's not any of the ones you're thinking of. One of my best friends were sitting in a computer lab, 
and I forget what had happened, but he said something to the effect of, dude, you take Jesus way too seriously. The kid was in my youth group. He used to be the leader of the youth group, and he was still involved in the youth group. He's now in ministry. Come on, man. Back off of this faith business. That's for Sunday morning. The problem is, it's not for Sunday morning. Sunday morning is where we gather to celebrate. Sunday morning is where, where we, yes, we gather to charge our batteries. Where we gather to celebrate what God has done in the previous week. Where we gather to be fed by Him, to feast on Him. So that Monday might come. As we're teaching our kids what's going on when they're lighting the candles and whatnot. And hey, Acolyte means follower. Stick behind me. Follow me. Come on. We're reminding them every week that Jesus is the light of the world. They could probably even tell you He is both God and man. Two candles. And when this service ends, He is beckoning us out these doors into a cold and dark and lonely world as light bearers we are following his light out because that's why we gather not just so we can be here but so that we can get back out of here to do work Paul insists that the Ephesians are quite different from the surrounding world, even the world in their midst. The world right next door. The world among them. In fact, even if you just casually flip through his letter to the Ephesians, you should notice all over the place his prayer for them to be different. His pleadings that they would really and truly live differently. That they would have family values and ways of doing life that are a bit odd in the ancient pagan world. Things like self-giving love. Who does that anyways? Things like radical forgiveness. Things like self-control. My goodness, if our culture had just an ounce of self-control, we would have saved ourselves from unbelievable disaster that we see around us. I was in a class just a couple months ago, and... Um, I said, Paul's saying, you better check yourself. And there's a mumble over here to the side before you wreck yourself. And I said, Anthony knows what I'm talking about. Paul's calling them to things like caring for the poor. Humility and service toward others. Things that are different 
In a dog-eat-dog world, this sort of life is odd. It is weird. It is a bit strange. And if you'll think about it, you'll probably agree that it's no less peculiar to live such as that now. But again, Paul insists that we are indeed different. We are called to be odd. We are called to be weird, whether we like it or not. We are called to be a bit strange. Peculiar, in fact. And so what about these verses that we've read this morning? God has given us the gift of His grace. He has poured out His grace upon our lives. He has made us His very own possession. You are mine, He says. He has brought us into His family and even given us His name. We bear the family name. By pure grace He has. He hasn't done this because of how well we've lived. He hasn't done this because of how good we are. He hasn't looked out over the earth and said, that Matt Hokinson, he's a pretty good chap. I think I want to make him one of my pretty good chaps. He looks out over the world and he says, come to me, any of you, All of you, if you're hurting, if you're lost, if you're looking and searching, if you're wondering, if you're trying desperately to find a place of rest, here it is. The doors are flung open. The prophet tells us to come and to eat, even though we have no money to buy bread. Come and drink, even though we have nothing with which to purchase wine. Come to the banquet. He has welcomed us home into the life of His church. And He declares over your life and mine that we are His if we will be His. It is purely by God's good grace that He has brought us in. And bringing us in, He declares, you are His workmanship. His masterpiece. That's how the New Living Translation words it. His masterpiece. I looked it up. And the word is simply, you are His work. You're what He's working on. That means that God is at work in you and in me. And the good news of that, I think we would probably all nod and say, good, because I need some work done. But the good news of that is that He has a plan. He knows what He's doing. 
Now, when you mess up, when you really fumble the ball, that's not God doing it. It's not, hey, he's got a plan for this. Sorry, team. I really blew the game here. But it does mean that in every day and every moment of our lives, wherever we find ourselves, God is doing something in the way of work. It might be stop that. It might be leave there. But He has a plan and He is at work. You might even say that He's been scheming against you. We're all here, right? God's been scheming against us. I don't know. I, I, I like that. But sometimes I wonder, do I really like that? That God's like moving things around and plotting against me? Uh, a couple of days ago, David, um, Dr. Nyhoff sent me a text and was celebrating some of the ways that God had opened doors and provided and met needs and he was praising the Lord and he said sometimes I feel like I'm scared to death or something to that effect sometimes I'm scared to death like you know that God's at work and I'm terrified because you know you don't know how it's going to play out and I said well of course he's not safe but he is good and he said hear him roar Please know that you are not a mere pawn in some power player's scheme or some cog in the great wheel of life. You are a precious masterpiece of the living God who made you in His image and who sent His very own Son to rescue you and remake His image in you. You are His workmanship. His masterpiece. You know what's not made in mass? Masterpieces. You don't just churn those things out. Prints can be mass produced, but masterpieces are labored over one by one by the hands of a skilled artist. That means that no two are quite alike. They all, each and every one of them, have nicks, blemishes, quirks. They're all a bit odd with their little oddities. No, masterpieces aren't churned out in mass. They take time and are covered with the fingerprints of their maker. That's one of the reasons I love our beautiful cross so much, Todd. I was thinking just this week,
how many splinters you might have gotten while laboring with this. How tough it must have been. I helped him move the thing in here and get it up on stage. We about died. Where were you all? We needed help. It was months ago and you weren't here. Handcrafted, small batch masterpieces. They take blood, sweat, and tears. You think God perhaps has some splinters in His fingers from having His hands all over the rough edges of your life and mine? Don't tell me that's not possible. Just think think of the wounded hands of Jesus. He can receive wounds in redeeming us. See, this is why we value relational community. Because it's, it's in the messiness of relationships, the personal touch, the intimacy and transparency of family that disciples are made. And yet can get a bit weird sometimes. It can get awfully uncomfortable But it's in this sort of context that masterpieces are handcrafted. So God welcomes us into His family. He raises us up as His children. He molds and forms our lives, even transforms us, conforming us into the image of His Son, Jesus. His Fingerprints are all over his masterpiece. And it's a slow and tedious and sweat and blood inducing process. But he says it's worth it. Redemption is always personal, it's never just churned out. But you know what? There's a reason God chooses to handcraft a masterpiece. He's making things of beauty of our lives. Not just so that He could be surrounded by things of beauty. God doesn't desire to just live in some fancy hotel or museum where everything around Him is lovely. No, He's wanting image bearers cut into the flesh of our lives, sent out into His world. He wants to send light out into the darkness. The amazing thing is that light always shatters the darkness. It does not matter how overwhelming the darkness is. It does not matter how minuscule the light is. Light will always win. 
And so you are his masterpiece. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus by his blood. Brought in, filled up, shaped to look like your maker and sent out. You're not here just to look good. You're here to do good. I know you can always slip off into that ditch of works righteousness where we're trying to legalistically be better than everybody else or legalistically think that we can earn our way into God's good favor. But the beauty of Paul's paradoxical conundrum that he creates for us here in Ephesians is that's not even in the cards. God saved you by His grace so that He can transform you and get you out where grace is needed. Again, you're not there just to look good. You're there to do good. This is why we do what we do. He's making masterpieces so that he might use those masterpieces to take light into a dark world, to take hope to those in despair, to take love to those who are angry, to take peace to those who are worried and restless. And if in the end we aren't about that, then we might as well just be cast out and trampled underfoot. Because that's how God makes masterpieces and that's why God makes masterpieces. Let's pray.